Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Talks between the U.S. and Russia over extending New START, the last remaining treaty that limits the nuclear weapon stockpiles of both countries, are at an impasse. Russia has proposed extending New START unconditionally for five years, while the U.S. wants a shorter time period with new conditions. In a recent interview, the top U.S. negotiator, Marshall Billingsley, issued an ultimatum telling Russia that the price of admission for a new treaty will go up unless Russia agrees to U.S. terms before the November election. Well, joining me is Tom Colina. He is director of policy of the Plowshares Fund, co-author of the new book, The Button, The New Nuclear Arms Race and Presidential Power from Truman to Trump, co-authored with former U.S. Secretary of Defense, William Perry. Tom, welcome to Pushback. Aaron, great to be here. Thanks for having me. For people who are not familiar with New START, can you talk about what is at stake with these talks on its renewal and your assessment of the impasse between the U.S. and Russia right now? Sure. Uh, the New START treaty is part of a long bipartisan tradition between the United States uh, and Russia, formerly the Soviet Union, to reduce their nuclear forces. It started 50 years ago uh, with bilateral reductions um, supported both by Republican and Democratic uh, administrations. This latest treaty, the New START Treaty, was negotiated by the Obama administration with a 10-year duration. Uh, that ends in February. And if the treaty is allowed to expire, this would be the first time in about 50 years that there have been no limitations on U.S. and Russian long-range nuclear weapons of the type that could get from Russia to here. Uh, and this is very dangerous. If we don't let get the treaty extended, if we let it expire, uh, both sides could then expand their nuclear forces um, and make the world less safe, increase the risk of nuclear war, and potentially... Uh, cause both countries to spend trillions of dollars more on expanding their nuclear arsenal. So, so there's a huge need to focus on this issue, to get the treaty uh, extended for up to five years. Unfortunately, what we're seeing right now is the Trump administration is simply not serious about uh, extending the treaty. They're, they're playing games with it. Um, they are seemingly using it as a political uh, tool for Trump's reelection. Unfortunately, where we have the situation now where the Trump administration is saying to Russia, you know, agree to our terms uh, before the election so we can get a political bump out of this. And if you don't agree to our terms, which by the way are, are unreasonable, if you don't agree to our terms, the price will go up after the election. So it's kind of an extortion racket, uh, if you will. It's not a serious way to conduct um, international negotiations, and uh, and my fears that the Trump administration uh, will fail. I think that their their plan is designed, in fact, to fail, to not extend New Start, um, and it'll just be a question of who wins the election in November, as to whether or not the treaty can be saved. Yeah, the Russians, I believe, have given an indication that if Biden wins, that they'd be open to try to uh, rush through an extension in the, in the very limited window in which that would be possible in between the inauguration in late January and when the treaty expires in February. You mentioned extortion. Billingsley, the U.S. envoy, uh, Trump's envoy, 
has reportedly said that uh, that unless uh, Russia agrees to U.S. terms, that the U.S. will, quote, unconvert, unquote, converted delivery systems so that they can deliver nuclear warheads. What does this mean? Uh, you know, I actually haven't seen that statement, so I don't quite know what he's getting at there. But but clearly what he's in, he's saying more generally is that if Russia doesn't agree to the U.S. terms that it's offering right now, uh, the terms will only get worse, which is, is kind of ironic uh, because Russia has already said we're not willing to accept these terms, you know, period, no way. Uh, and so why to think that they would accept worse terms after the election uh, is beyond me, particularly when the Russians can wait and say, well, look, we'll, we'll wait to see who wins the November election. Uh, if Biden wins, we will certainly get better terms from a Biden administration. And I think that's true because the Biden administration supports arms control, uh, unlike the Trump administration. So the Biden administration will presumably have a reasonable approach to negotiating with Russia. So Russia has nothing to lose at this point by waiting to see who wins. Uh, and the Trump administration's efforts to kind of strong arm the process and, and Russia decision before the election are are, are simply uh, not going to work. And, and they also appear to be, um, you know, mistakenly politically motivated. And what do you make of the Trump administration's efforts to include, to demand the inclusion of China in any sort of new New START framework that bringing China into New START and insisting that Russia essentially get China to agree to U.S. terms? Uh, you know, look, I mean, China is a is a concern. China has a uh, large, uh, not large compared to the United States, but a significant nuclear arsenal of about 200 nuclear weapons. So we have to take that seriously. But when you look at it in comparison to the U.S. and Russian arsenals, which are about four to six thousand weapons each, depending on how you count them, uh, China clearly has an arsenal that is a fraction of the size. Um, and so to ask China to take part in negotiations with the United States and Russia, uh, who have so much larger forces, you know, simply doesn't make sense at this time. Eventually, we'd, we'd love to have that be the situation where all the countries are involved. And by the way, those multilateral talks should also include countries like China and France, which have nuclear forces that are similar in number to China's. Uh, but to me, that's further down the road. Uh, right now, it's the United States and Russia that have 90% of the nuclear weapons in the world. And so they're the ones that need to sit down uh, and hash this out. And the Trump administration's demand that China be part of this uh, is simply a red herring. Look, I mean, I mean, the Trump administration is looking for uh, a smokescreen to hide behind someone else to blame for the fact that the New START Treaty uh, is heading towards um, elimination, towards defeat. They don't want to take the blame for that, although that's the goal that they want, uh, and they're just looking for a scapegoat. And as someone who engages in lobbying on this issue and policy discussions, what do you make of the relative lack of attention? I mean, we're talking about just being potentially months away from a renewed nuclear arms race, but yet this story is not getting very much attention in the media and also in Congress, including from Democrats. Yeah, um, I don't really know what to make of it other than, you know, the obvious. Um, we're living in, in, in crazy times. Uh, the coronavirus, um, the economy, uh, racial injustice, climate change, fires burning out west. I mean, there's so many 
issues and crises all converging at the same time uh, that people have a lot on their minds and, and the media has a lot on their minds. But this is an important story, uh, so much so that, as you mentioned, I've written a book with former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry focused on nuclear policy issues and the risks that we face. And we wrote that book because we don't think that the media or the public are paying enough attention. So clearly, I agree with you. These are important issues, you know, as important as all the other issues that are going on today. Uh, if we don't avoid nuclear war, none of those issues will matter. Um, so we need to get this one right. And the place to start is extending the New START Treaty. But even before the pandemic and, and the protests over racism, you had Trump pulling out of the INF Treaty, another major accord limiting the weapon systems of both the U.S. and Russia also did not get very much attention or pushback from Congress. What was the response, especially when you would speak to Democrats uh, on Capitol Hill about this issue? Well, there's a chicken and egg problem here. I mean, I think to a large extent, the public has moved on from thinking about nuclear policy uh, when the Cold War ended 30 years ago. Uh, and that's on the one hand understandable uh, because people felt that the issue was going to be dealt with, that we would eventually move on to the elimination of nuclear weapons. Um, but on the other hand, it, it didn't happen, right? So, so without the public concern, without the public demand that the members of Congress uh, get engaged in this issue and make a difference, the members of Congress are not going to do that. You know, we've, we have a few members in Congress that are true leaders on this issue and realize that there's still a danger here that has to be addressed. But most members of Congress, because they're not hearing it from their constituents, uh, will focus on other things. I mean, that's, you know, that's what members of Congress do. They, they address the most important issues that they feel their constituents uh, are seeing and experiencing. Nuclear weapons dangers are not one of those. And again, it's something we need to change. Unless the public is engaged, uh, and now will be a great time, the 75th anniversary uh, of the first use of nuclear weapons uh, over Japan 75 years ago, and the fact that we are having an historic presidential election uh, is the time for the public to get involved. Because, of course, remember, you know, presidents control nuclear policy. Nuclear weapons are the president's weapons, and the president we choose uh, will have a huge impact of the nuclear policy of the United States. And that's a major uh, proposal in your book to end the use of sole authority. Do you think that Joe Biden is any closer to embracing that proposal than previous presidents? I think he is. Uh, the The Biden campaign has, uh, has indicated its support uh, for something called uh, sole purpose, which essentially means that the sole purpose of nuclear weapons should be to deter their use by others uh, and not to use them first. So I would equate that with a policy never to start nuclear war, never to use nuclear weapons first. And that's our big concern uh, with the current policy of sole authority, which is that the president of the United States, under his own authority, without approval from Congress or anyone else in his cabinet, can direct the use of U.S. nuclear weapons. Uh, whenever he chooses to, and even in a first-use situation. So giving up the right to first use, which we see is not a very useful right, because um, I don't think any rational president would ever initiate nuclear war. But for a president to give up first use, I think, would essentially mean that uh, no president would use nuclear weapons um, in, a, in a quick decision. And that's what we're most worried about here, that, that a president... 
uh, could stumble into nuclear war based on a false alarm of nuclear attack. Uh, and therefore, we want to build in more time and more um, you know, thought into that process. No one should rush into nuclear war. And making it clear that the United States will never initiate nuclear war uh, to us is an important way to, uh, to make that process uh, as, as transparent and as secure as it can be. On that point about accidentally stumbling into nuclear confrontation, your co-author, William Perry, lived through some of these episodes. Can you give us one you think best illustrates just how dangerous our current situation is and how close we came to a nuclear confrontation with Russia? Sure. Um, you know, former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry, uh, he was the undersecretary in 1980 during the Carter administration. Um, he got a call in the middle of the night uh, from someone uh, in, the, in the early warning office, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a command and control officer, who was looking at his computer screens and had seen uh, indications of about 200 nuclear weapons coming at the United States from Russia. Uh, they had figured out that it was a false alarm. And they were calling us, uh, Bill Perry, to see what went wrong with their computers, um, which which turned out to be a, a faulty computer chip that was in the system. Uh, that to him uh, was a very sobering experience and made him realize that this is you know not an academic question. Uh, we've had false alarms before. We've had more than that. There have been uh, additional false alarms. Russia has had false alarms. And there could be false alarms again. And, and, and what makes us most concerned is, for example, um, cyber threats. Most Americans don't realize that our early warning and command and control systems are networked, are based on computers, and therefore um, are vulnerable to, to cyber threats and hacks. So, and in fact, we open our uh, book with a, with a, a fictional scenario, uh, but all of which could happen where uh, our command and control system is hacked to make it appear that we are under attack from Russia. And the president is alerted to this uh, possible attack and has just minutes to decide what to do. Uh, and in our scenario, the president decides to launch. And, and once the, that launch takes place, uh, it can't be recalled. So the president launches, uh, then is realized, then realizes that it's a false alarm, and there's nothing he could do. We can't take it back, and uh, and global nuclear war uh, ensues. And so we want to prevent this. Uh, we want to buy the president more time in decision making. And there's three main ways we want to do this. One is to uh, is to take away, prohibit President Shell's sole authority, so that the president has to consult with others to slow the process down. Uh, two is, as we've discussed, have a no first use policy so the United States can't initiate nuclear war. Uh, and three, um, we want to retire the weapons that are most vulnerable to a false alarm danger. And that is our land-based ballistic missiles uh, because they're vulnerable, uh, because those are the weapons that the president would have to launch or potentially lose them uh, in a surprise nuclear attack situation. Uh, and we don't need them for deterrence because we have nuclear weapons based on submarines and, and bombers uh, that would be um, able to survive an attack and therefore deter any attack on us. So we think it, with, with those three steps, we would be uh, much safer from, from uh, stumbling into an accidental nuclear war. Well, speaking of ballistic missiles, 
the Air Force recently awarded a $13.3 billion contract to Northrop Grumman to develop a new intercontinental ballistic missile system. What is the significance and danger of this? Right. So this is a great time to have a conversation about uh, land-based ballistic missiles and do we need them? Because as you mentioned, the Air Force uh, awarded a contract to Northrop Grumman. Uh, this you mentioned the thirteen billion. This is a small down payment on what would be probably over a one hundred billion dollar program, when all is said and done, to completely replace um, all of the land based ballistic missiles we have uh, today, and we think this is a terrible idea. Uh, not only is it tremendously expensive, but we simply don't need these weapons. Um, as I described, they're not needed for deterrence. Um, we have weapons based on submarines at sea and on bombers, um, so these weapons are, are redundant. Not only that, but they make the false alarm accidental war danger even worse, because these are the weapons that are on high alert, but are highly vulnerable to nuclear attack. So if the president was told uh, that there's a nuclear attack coming, uh, there would be pressure to use these weapons before they're destroyed in the ground. Um, and so we don't want the president to be uh, susceptible to that kind of pressure in a short-term decision-making situation. And by eliminating these weapons, there would be less uh, pressure, incentive for the president to respond quickly. Again, the main thing we want to do is to uh, stretch out the process, to, to delay uh, any quick decisions, because the last thing we want to do is stumble by mistake into nuclear war, I think that's everybody's worst nightmare. Pentagon right now is in the midst of a, you know, many multi-year nuclear modernization program. The price tag is estimated at up to $2 trillion, maybe even more. There was just a report in the Washington Post saying that the Pentagon uh, spent a $1 billion fund from Congress that was supposed to go towards buying and building up the country's medical supply stockpile in response to the pandemic. They used that money instead mostly uh, to defense contractors to make things such as, quote, jet engine parts, body armor, and dress uniforms. Your comments on this story and, and overall just the influence of the weapons industry in shaping uh, U.S. nuclear weapons policy and spending priorities. Well, I think it's a it's a travesty. I mean, you know, clearly Congress intended that money to go to uh, pandemic response. Um, instead, the Pentagon spent it on kind of business as usual type of stuff. Um, and it, I think it shows that we can't uh, just give more money to the Pentagon and think that it'll, it'll change their priorities. Uh, I think the old guard uh, is there protecting the old ways. And we need to realize that, that just throwing more money at the Pentagon and telling them to use it for coronavirus is not going to get the job done. We need to uh, take money away from a Pentagon budget, which I think is, is excessive uh, and oversized as is, and redirect that money to uh, agencies that are committed to working on coronavirus. I mean, look, clearly coronavirus is, an, uh, is a national security threat that we were unprepared for. Uh, 200,000 Americans have died as a result of the coronavirus more than, than, in, any, uh, more than in any conflict since, since World War II. 
Um, so there's no way you can't argue that this is not a national security threat. Uh, yet the Pentagon, uh, the vast majority of the Pentagon budget, $740 billion a year, uh, was not focused on coronavirus. And you have to ask why. And, and is the president, uh, sorry, is the, is the Pentagon focused on the highest priority threats? And I think we have to say no. Uh, they're focused on the threats of yesterday, uh, great power competition, um, uh, and things of this nature. Uh, and, for example, preparing for an intentional attack, a nuclear attack from Russia, which uh, I think is very unlikely. And they're not focused on uh, the highest, most likely threats of today, uh, pandemics, uh, the effects of climate change, uh, and the risk of accidental nuclear war. Those are the things we need to focus on, and I think we're going to have to change our federal budget priorities to make those things happen. Let's say Biden gets in and he wants to cut spending on nuclear weapons, wants to cut spending for ICBMs, he wants to use political capital on that. What kind of lobbying effort would he face? Well, first of all, uh, the president has a huge amount of influence over nuclear policy. Um, you know, uh, nuclear policy is the president's domain. So a new president, President Biden, if he wins, can have a huge uh, influence over that policy by, for example, laying out um, a new national security strategy, which says, uh, you know, we're going to focus on the key threats of tomorrow, not yesterday. We're going to focus on pandemics. We're going to focus on the security impacts of climate change. Uh, we're going to prevent, um, you know, uh, unintended nuclear war. And we're going to uh, recalibrate and, and, and redistribute our federal resources um, in the appropriate way. And so we're going to stop spending money on things that aren't uh, serving our security purposes and start spending in, in areas that do. So one of the main areas where uh, we're spending too much, and in our view, uh, spending, spending money in ways that make us less safe, is to reduce the amount of money we're, we're spending on, on nuclear weapons modernization. And right now, as you said, uh, the Trump administration is planning to spend upwards of $2 trillion over the next 30 years uh, to modernize and replace the U.S. nuclear arsenal. Uh, we don't need to do that to be safe. Uh, part of that is to replace the ICBMs, which I've already described makes us less safe. So we would feel we'd actually be safer if we take the $100 billion that are now earmarked for the new land-based ballistic missile and use that as a down payment to really deal with the pandemic, to really deal with climate change uh, and other things. Um, so I think the way for a Biden administration to package this is we're taking a new approach. Uh, we are dealing with the threats uh, of today and tomorrow, and we're going to stop spending money on things that are making us less safe. Your co-author, William Perry, has famously written in his memoir, I believe, that he considered resigning during the Clinton administration after Clinton decided to expand NATO in contravention of the promises that the U.S. made to the Soviet Union at the end of the Cold War. Yet now when we talk about cutting nuclear spending and scaling it back, you often hear appeals to our NATO allies that this would be abandoning our NATO allies. Does NATO, in your opinion, exacerbate the nuclear threat? Well, I mean, to the extent we're using NATO 
as an excuse uh, not to do the things that we need to do for our own security, um, then yes. But I really don't think uh, NATO is the problem here. I mean, people who want to uh, rebuild the U.S. nuclear arsenal in an excessive way often use the Allies as an excuse, saying, look, if we don't uh, you know, double down on our nuclear spending, um, the Allies will lose confidence in us. Uh, for example, many have argued against a no-first-use policy by saying if the United States announces a no-first-use policy, um, our Allies will not think that we're going to come to their defense, and they might uh, abandon us or develop their own nuclear arsenals. Uh, I think these are really scare tactics. I don't think there's much truth to them. Uh, I think, you know, the allies are, are, are quite smart in knowing what's good for their security and what's not and what steps the United States might take um, that is good for them and, and, and what is not. But, but I think it's clear that the United States has a highly dependable, reliable nuclear force that acts as a deterrent against attack by Russia. Uh, we have more than we need. Um, and the Allies' focus should be on reducing the threat of nuclear war, which, of course, uh, would impact them as well as everyone else, uh, rather than things that might uh, prop up uh, dangerous and excessive levels of nuclear forces. I want to try to end on a hopeful note on this ominous issue. In the 1980s, there was a huge movement, popular movement, in the U.S. and around the world uh, to and nuclear weapons, and that had tangible impacts. Can you talk about what that entailed, how that shaped U.S. policy, and if it could be revived again, what impact it could make today? Well, again, I think, you know, uh, what we need to do is, is, is get back to where the public attention was at the end of the Cold War, uh, where during the Reagan administration, there were, there were great fears um, that there could be nuclear war between the United States and then the Soviet Union um, and the destructive, destructive nature um, of that. And so there was a, there was a large public outcry uh, against the dangers of nuclear war. That led to political attention to these issues at the highest levels, uh, including the Reagan administration, um, that felt the need to meet with uh, the Soviet Union and was actually quite close um, to negotiating a treaty to eliminate nuclear weapons. Unfortunately, that didn't happen, but that political momentum translated into the arms control treaties, again, supported in a bipartisan way, that led to the New START treaty uh, that we started out this conversation discussing. Um, and so what we need to do, I think, at this point is reclaim some of that public support, some of that public concern, uh, that was that was essential uh, and significant at the end of the Cold War, uh, and we need to get it back today. Because again, even if a president is elected um, who greatly uh, understands these issues and is concerned about them and wants to make a difference, unless there's the public support uh, and pressure pushing the president to do that, I mean, there's so many demands on a president's time. They need to know that the uh, work that they're doing and that the efforts that they're expending their political capital on are things that the American people want them to do. And the only way to know that is to hear it from the public, to hear it from the members of Congress. Uh, and we can't just assume that the president can, can take care of this. They need political support. And so the public uh, desperately needs to be engaged in these issues.
Tom Kalina, Director of Policy at the Plowshares Fund, co-author of the new book, The Button, The New Nuclear Arms Race and Presidential Power from Truman to Trump. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you.